So we got laughed out of all sorts of boardrooms. Some people use quite hurtful language, actually. One guy actually told me, you will never generate a single dollar of revenue with this idea. While the digital mechanisms are great, there is really no substitute for spending time in person with your customer. And when you serve 82,000 customers and you have approaching 1,500 people, you know, how do you divide and conquer? I would advise against a model which only solves for one dimension around like company size, because there are certain companies that may carry a lot of value because they're influencers. What my job is, is to make sure that the number of things that are inspirational, impactful, uplifting, trounce those challenges. One of the things that I underestimated is how much I would enjoy being accountable to others. I get to do that every day, and that's pretty special. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Mark Mader to Founder Real Talk. Mark's the president and CEO of Smartsheet, a role he's been in since 2006. He's grown the company from a six-employee startup to a publicly traded company with over 1,000 employees, serving 82,000 customers. Smartsheet is the no-code platform for enterprise achievement, and the company's committed to transforming the way organizations plan, track, manage, automate, and report on work at scale. Under Mark's leadership, Smartsheet has consistently been named one of the best places to work, and he's been named the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in Technology for the Pacific Northwest and GeekWire's CEO of the Year as well. The company achieved an IPO in April 2018, a very successful IPO, and has traded quite well since. And so Mark, with over 20 years of executive leadership experience and driving innovation for high-growth SaaS companies, is recognized as a leader in the technology community. Mark, it's really exciting to have you. Welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you, Glenn. Take us back to kind of the early days of Smartsheet. Maybe talk a little bit about the inspiration that you and, and the founders had and what was sort of the initial idea and what we were trying to accomplish in the early days? Yeah, the, the inspiration really came through observation. There wasn't this, this genesis moment where people were sitting there and said, oh my gosh, I have this idea that spontaneously presented itself. It came through actually years of observing our clients at our previous jobs and seeing how much work was being managed within very, what I would call, ever-present yet primitive tools. And uh, one of the tools of choice for a long time was Excel. And we did it internally, even though we were a CRM company and all these uh, very capable systems, so much of our time was still spent tracking and collecting and plotting and organizing information in Excel. And what we observed was that this was happening at almost every single company we served as well. Mm -hmm. It didn't care what function you were in. It didn't care what industry you were in. This was the tool of choice. And um, while we observed that, we also saw ourselves and also in our customers things that were driving very high degrees of frustration. And we knew that, that likely, like there, there was likely a better way. And that, that's really what, the, what spawned Smartsheet. 
you know, in 2006, that was a pretty novel idea. Today, it seems like, you know, there's lots of entrepreneurs trying to build productivity apps to really help change the way people work. But it must have been a little bit of a lonely and, uh, you know, tough experience to start a company back in that era. Microsoft was very, very strong. And what sort of reception did you have from, you know, the investment community and uh, maybe the, the tech press as well? Was, was this something that was exciting to people or was it a little tough to get attention at that time? Well, I'd like to thank you, Glenn, for saying that it was a novel idea. I think some people said it was a crazy idea. So let us get this straight. You want to start a company that is going to improve on the thing that about a billion people use and find pretty useful. Yep, that's what we want to do. Okay. But now, aren't Microsoft and isn't this company called Google who are going to pretty much do the spreadsheet thing in the cloud? Yep, they are. You still want to do that? We do. So we got laughed out of all sorts of boardrooms. Some people use quite hurtful language, actually. One guy actually told me, you will never generate a single dollar of revenue with this idea. <laughs> and uh, I do see him around town once in a while still, Glenn, and I, I, I tip my hat to him. <laughs> yep. Thanks for the motivation. So, so yeah, it was, um, I, I do think it was a novel idea. And, and what people missed early was that we absolutely wanted to capitalize on people's familiarity with the spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. But the point they missed was that we were actually not replicating the spreadsheet in the cloud. We were, we were addressing the things that spreadsheets, even today, still do very, very poorly. The structuring of information, making it reportable, really solving for what spreadsheets don't do well, which is beautifully tracking information that is non-numeric in nature, principally, right? So when you look at what, I think there's a stat out there that says 60% of all spreadsheets in the world don't contain formulas. Mm -hmm. Well, what the heck do they contain? Yeah. It's work. Work. They contain work. And we basically built a service that, that optimizes for that. Well, that's a really cool story. I want to I come back to the product in a minute. But getting back to the early days of the company, your role evolved early on at the company. Talk a little bit about you know, how you joined and how you evolved into the CEO role and what that process was like and how taking over as CEO was, was important for you in the evolution of the company. I remember uh, going home and, and sharing with my spouse that I'd been offered a job. And she's like, that's great, Mark. It's, uh, how many folks? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's Brent and Maria and Eric and this, this other guy, John, who was, came over from Concur. And she goes, so, okay, tell me about it. I said, well, I'm going to be hired as president. And uh, we did not have a CEO at the time. That was a vacant role. So I said, honey, it's great news. Not only do I get to be president and lead the firm, I also get to write a check. <laughs> so I got a job, but I need to pay to get that job. <laughs> so what we did early was we, we had decided as a founding group to not have a CEO until we have a significant event. And that significant event we identified as our first round of funding. And upon closing our Series A with Madrona in Seattle, um, I was appointed CEO, filling that vacant spot, and uh, the rest is history. Is that something you'd recommend? Was was this kind of a deferral until you guys felt like, okay, well, let's raise around and see who emerges as CEO, or what was the logic there? And do you think this is some uh, like a, a, a tool that other founders might might consider as they start their companies? It's something that I I, I share that story. And I've seen some companies embrace it around not over-titling too early. 
I love it when I meet an eight-person firm and I get introduced to the chief revenue officer. Right. It's like, well, well, how much revenue do you have? Well, we don't have revenue yet, but I am the chief revenue officer. I'm like, congratulations, that's amazing. Uh, so what we what we did early was, and what we still do to this day, Glenn, is we do not overtitle. And our, our philosophy is the earned enterprise, you earn it. So unless you can help raise a round mark, you will be somewhat of a hollowed out CEO. And I subscribed to that. I took that challenge. And uh, what some people don't know is we actually didn't we didn't establish C level titles at our company until we crossed two hundred million in ARR. That's incredible. We had a CFO at the time, but we did not have a chief revenue officer. We did not have a chief marketing officer. We didn't have a chief product officer. We had SVPs. So the the bold question. So why did you do that? That seems odd. Well, part of it is earn it. And then part of it also is as you're growing, how do you make sure that you maintain some room in your organization if that CMO, CRO, CHRO emerges? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to take a title away. It's much easier to grant one. Yeah, that is a uh, really interesting anecdote and very anachronistic with the times. You know, most startups that we're involved with struggle the other way. Like in order to recruit great people, they sometimes have to overtitle to get great people in. This is a pretty common occurrence, I think, throughout uh, Silicon Valley and certainly, you know, other centers like Seattle where the, the, the job market's tight. Did this kind of earn it strategy with titles and roles, did it inhibit you from recruiting some of the people you wanted to inhibit? Or what do you think the, the byproduct of this strategy was for you guys in terms of the talent you were able to uh, recruit? Zero impact. Zero we continue to look for a certain profile. And the, the person I decidedly do not wish to work with and introduce to our team is someone who cares about the jazz hands, cares about the title, cares about all the things that actually don't directly influence uh, their ability to lead or to perform. Mm-hmm. And those people are out there, Glenn. It's, it's a profile that we seek. I'm not saying everyone must adopt this. This is our philosophy. Yep. And it served us really well. That's really cool. Talk about... V1 of the product versus where you are today. You know, what did you emphasize early on and how have things evolved over time? It's so it's so much fun when you look back and you look at these the innovations you bring to market and you're like, "We got it. <laughs> well, this is it. This is going to be the world beater." And then and then you realize that, well, maybe it's a it's a world beater in, in, in one small region. A, re- a regional beater? Is that a regional beater? A regional beater. <laughs> regional beater. Take a lot of pride in that. <laughs> uh, so we had a regional beater, in a sense, because we had really solved well for creating a, a spreadsheet in form type solution with different functions to better track and organize information and make it shareable online. So that was that was our what we called the grid. And that was really V1. And we thought, Glenn, well, this thing is gonna take the take the world by storm. What we found was we found people quite interested, especially post-2010, in tracking their information uh, using Smartsheet. But what we realized was there was this seminal moment that I remember so well. I remember flying down to the Bay Area and meeting with one of our large tech customers who had used Smartsheet throughout their sales ops organization. And I was meeting with their uh, head of uh, operations for the sales ops team, and his name was Manny. I go, Manny, how, uh, how's the team liking Smartsheet? He goes, my team loves Smartsheet. Next question. Manny, what are they using it for? Answer, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, that's sort of a problem. And, and Manny's point was, Mark, I don't feel like hanging out in the Smartsheet. 
it's like, I don't need to see what the status of row 484 is. He goes, I want, I want the summary view. Right. I want the answer. Right. So from that, we emerge dashboards, the ability for the manage of the world to be able to see things in an aggregate visual way where they can operate at a different elevation than the teams delivering every single last detail. And over time, the product has gone from that tracker in the early days, that was V1, to now having automation and dashboarding, uh, mobile, uh, card views, integrations with other products. Very cool. How have you organized the company around making sure that you built the right product? Um, you know, getting feedback like that, critical feedback from Manny, and making sure that gets you know that the right cycle is in place to inculcate those those key uh, observations into the product. Do you have like kind of a formal product management team? Maybe talk a little bit about how you you built that out to make sure that you really nailed the product because that's obviously been critical to your success. Yeah, I, I view you know now that we have you know approaching fifteen hundred employees, I view each of our employees as not only having the ability but it's their duty to serve as a microphone. And you know you, we always need to be listening. We need to be listening for signal. I think especially in the current day, a lot of people think about capturing signal digitally, uh, providing mechanisms online through surveys ways for people to submit ideas and concepts. And, and I think that works really well. It's one of the things we do, and that, that flows into our product management organization. But in addition to product management, we listen through our support organization, our consulting organization, our sales organization. And each of these teams gathers, formulates, and submits to our product teams this signal. What I will also be quick to say is while the digital mechanisms are great, there is really no substitute for spending time in person with your customer. And when you serve 82,000 customers and you have approaching 1,500 people, you know, how do you divide and conquer? And you need to be quite choiceful in where you spend your time, making sure that you don't react to the latest request, but really having a process for, for how to handle that. It's a pretty sophisticated process. It didn't start out as a sophisticated one. And what has driven that that sophistication is now catering to multiple audiences. Initially, we really serve the worker, the workforce. And today, we serve the workforce in addition to IT, in addition to business leadership. Mm. So the pickups have broadened. Very interesting. Okay, I want to discuss go-to-market for a moment. You know, I count myself... And my partner Jeff, I know, feels the same way. We're 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 in the group of the the proud who didn't see it. The vision you guys had early on. I remember being up in Seattle and meeting with you guys and seeing a product that to me looked like, yeah, it looked like an online spreadsheet. And I, I didn't understand the vision. My but my recollection is back in those days, and you already had some pretty decent traction. It was it was pretty organic, if I remember correctly. And if I, I don't I'm not sure I've got this precisely right, but you deferred, you know, bringing on a, a traditional sales kind of sales and go to market team till you already had some pretty sizable scale. Is that not right? And if so, how did you do that? How did you, you know, take this product to market without traditional selling? Yeah, our, our first salesperson was brought on at roughly the nine or ten million in ARR level. Yeah, that's definitely much later than most companies. Yeah, yeah, and and we were, let's call it stubbornly idealistic early in thinking that one could build a service that, if connected with, uh, with people who had an ability to transact, uh, could be sold without assistance. And I still believe that to be true. What we have extended into with our sales team is the recognition that, while that is possible, can you deliver a better experience for your customer by being there to help counsel them? And I think as an offering diversifies and has more value levers, 
I think not helping a customer through that journey is a disservice to the customer, and it also happens to leave opportunity on the table for you. And initially, it was really, I would call it our, our salesperson, our first quota-carrying salesperson was really not a hunter. They were a farmer. Mm-hmm. You could almost call them a hybrid between a salesperson and an account manager and a customer success rep, if you will. And then over time, we obviously you know, formulated the new business team, the expansion team, the strategic team, and other teams. But uh, that was the impetus for it initially. Customers wanted that counsel. But you've got 82,000 customers. Mm-hmm. You know, if we transported back in time a couple of decades, companies in your business just couldn't have that many customers at your size, right? right. I'm assuming you haven't had uh, close touch and in-person touch with each of them. Correct. So are, are most of your customers finding you um, themselves? And then, and then if so, when do you kind of attach, if you will, salespeople to their, to their journey? I think there there are a couple a couple dimensions to to consider. One is the size of the organization. Another may be the fluency of the person um, looking to embark on their smartsheet journey. We really want to respond to a customer's interest. So what we don't want to be known for is the salesperson or sales team that chases someone around the block two hundred times, finally catches them, and then forces the sale. That's just not how we roll. Uh, we don't do a lot of cold calling. We, we really respond to signal. Now, now, to do that, you need to have enough flow coming in. And we do that through digital demand gen. We have a sharing model in our product that, that introduces us to new organizations from our existing customers. And then we respond to inquiries. I would say when you get into a larger organization and you've, you've successfully deployed in a division and you want to introduce the concept to a neighboring division, that is a type of selling, outbound selling, but it's typically in the context of an existing customer relationship. Got it. You mentioned you know, when, when you started, your initial sales hires were really wore, wore several hats and were kind of farmers and did a lot of pre-sales but also post-sales work. As you've grown, I assume you've uh, adopted more traditional roles on on pre and post sales how about on size of company like do you have an enterprise group of folks who focus on larger companies and the needs they have and is that distinct from a team that may focus on you know mid-size or smaller companies we do and it's uh the territory definition is is quite well defined at the company uh, we have accounts that that we consider uh, strategic accounts those are typically larger cap companies with uh, diverse uh, operations which receive a certain type of engagement and a certain type of role from our company engaging with them. We also do that assessment every year. So we, we look at our territories, we look at how we serve those customers heading into each, each fiscal year, and uh, we adjust territories as needed. I would say one of the things that we're quite mindful of is that I would advise against uh, a model which only solves for one dimension around like company size because there are certain companies that may carry a lot of value because they're influencers, they're connectors. Like a mid-sized company that happens to sit in the supply chain of four megaliths may be really interesting to provide a lot of love to. So I think typically there's comfort and simplicity, uh, but I think sometimes you miss a lot of opportunity that way. Got it. Interesting. Okay. You know, one of the things you, you've done now for your customers is hold a pretty big customer conference. I think it was your third annual Engage conference that just took place not too long ago. And it sounds like you had, you know, 4,000 or so people attend. So quite a party, which must feel quite gratifying. But 
it's only your third annual and you've been going, you guys have been going for a long time as a company, mm-hmm. uh, as we talked about founded in 06. So why did you defer until, you know, so long, a decade or so until starting the customer conferences and um, what have you gotten out of, out of those events? And is that something you recommend to, to other startups? And if so, like when in the journey is the right time to do that? Yeah, I'll answer that saying it was the right time for us to do it three years ago for the first time. And and I had been asked by board members quite a few years prior, <laughs> you should do a conference, you should do a conference. And I always said, no, 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 no. And then I, and I articulated why. I said, if I ask a customer to come out of rotation for two days, three days, put their job on hold, pay for the ticket, pay for the hotel to come to Seattle in this case, it better be one damn good conference. <laughs> and when I say damn good conference, Len, I don't mean we have a great entertainer. Right. No, no, no. Make it a damn good conference. And uh, we, we have been very intentional about it. We throw an amazing party. We've done that the last three years. However, there hasn't been a half-million-dollar entertainer act. It's a damn good conference because people engage with one another. It is an amazing place to convene and to learn from one another and to form friendships. That is why people come. It's not for the headline act. And, um, and what we did is we, we said when we hold that first conference three years ago, and we got over 1,000 people to our first one, we did it because we felt we had something to share with them. We felt that we had uh, education tracks that people could get value from. And lo and behold, in year two, there were over 2,000. In year three, there were 4,000. So that formula works. So the advice I would give to someone considering, I said, make your first one a good one because it sets the tone. And what we found in this latest one is that people were arriving in groups now. So companies were sending five people and six people and four people. And some people sent 18 people to the conference. Mm. Some companies did. And that, that is really a sign that they're deriving value. How do you guys, I mean, obviously attendance is an easy metric to track growth. And it sounds like you, you've had, uh, you started big and have gotten even bigger over time. And watching some videos from the last Engage, obviously there's a lot of energy in the room, but are there other ways that you try to gauge success and metrics you put against these, these events to make sure that they're, they're achieving the objectives you want to achieve? We do. We look at, we look at a number of, uh, of reports of the attendees and we look at sort of how high functioning the organizations who attend are in utilizing the capabilities and deriving value from our product. And we typically see, it's, it's a bit of a self-selecting group too, right, Glenn? The people who show up are typically more engaged and higher functioning. But we do see really nice progression in those accounts after they leave the nest, the engaged nest. And uh, I would say the, the metrics around what we track, the first year was it exceeded our expectations. And let's just say it was a really tough comp. And I was very concerned going into the second year. It's like, avoid the sophomore slump. Avoid the sophomore slump. Right. And we've actually been able to maintain uh, those levels of engagement and adoption on the things that we announced in each successive year, which is pretty neat. I think one of the things I'm, I'm very proud of with this conference is now three years running. Uh, and this is, I would say, quite unique for a tech company. Uh, attendance, over 50% of the attendees are women. That's very cool. And it's so neat to see a true representation of the workforce walk through the doors. And uh, I take a lot of pride in that. As you should, Mark. That's great. Congratulations on that point. One other topic I wanted to discuss with you, especially given that now you're a public company, is is your board. Mm-hmm. We don't need to go through the gory details of your, your rounds of venture financing, especially since it's painful for me because we weren't smart <laughs> enough to invest uh, here at GGV. But 
obviously you have some very happy investors that you've delivered for. But as you guys started to head towards IPO and now as a public company, anything you've done to kind of build out your board or, or transition your board into the kind of board you, you want and need as a public company and anything you'd, you'd say, hey, this was a good move, not naming names per se, but if you want to, I'm certainly open to good people to recruit to our companies, but more like in terms of what you should be looking for as you scale your company and, and, and take steps like going public and being public. I think one of the, the approaches that the approach that we've taken is, is one of transition. I think whenever you do a, a big gear shift or a gear change, it can introduce a bit of an abrupt bump. So what we elected to do heading into the IPO was to identify two new board members. Uh, those were in addition to our investor-centric board. And we looked for a couple things. Uh, we looked for people who had participated in growth environments, and both, both members we did. One was uh, actually the first money in its sales force, uh, first, first outside money in, and and she had seen those key decisions made along its early growth trajectory, and in addition to her investor background, had also been an operator. So I love working with operators, operators who happen to have vision and who are resilient. And I think it's also useful to identify what what is the superpower you're trying to identify in this person, as opposed to having a sort of uh, a general athlete. So with, with each of the board members we've identified, we've, we've hoped and solved for a superpower, and that, that one individual uh, happens to be a very strong marketing mind. The second board member we, we brought on prior to IPO uh, is a sitting CFO at a SaaS company probably two times our size. She had seen uh, software at scale. She had been with Salesforce as it grew, I think, past $10 billion in revenue. So I love that both of these people aren't intimidated by scale. They face tough situations, great communicators. And I think by having a sitting operator on your board, one of the huge benefits, they don't have a lot of time and they communicate very concisely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Great attribute. Sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And when people are busy, they can really use their time quite well. Yeah, That's great to hear. How about for you? You guys went public very successfully last year and, and now have been public you know, a year and a half plus or so and, and uh, have had, had a you know, terrific run, but mm-hmm. you've, you've thrown increasingly large user conferences. Your company is, as you mentioned, 1,500 people and growing. Your job as CEO, how, how has, I mean, I, I'm sure you're a very busy man. We appreciate you doing this, but w- what is your life like and how do you see it changing? How, how has it changed over the last year? plus as you've been public, and, and how do you see it continue to evolve? Well, I, I answer one question very differently than I used to, Glenn. When people ask me, Mark, how are you doing? This was up until about a year and a half ago. I used to share with them a story of something great that just happened or something that was a challenge. I don't do that anymore. I answered like a true SaaS CEO. I go, on a net basis, things are fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Net basis. I like every it. day, Glenn. Every maybe not every day. Every week, definitely every week. There is something that is extraordinarily challenging that happens, whether it be on a professional dimension, um, like a, our company, a customer, personally. Welcome to life, right? Yeah. Welcome to life. Congratulations. What my job is is to make sure that the number of things that are inspirational, impactful, uplifting, trounce those challenges. And uh, you know, if if you know, 
every week, every month, one could throw, uh, you have, everyone has good reason to, to throw a pity party. No one wants to come to that party, Glenn. Nobody. <laughs> so how do you focus on those things without being blind to challenges? How do you focus on that net positive? And then when you see things emerge that drive impact, how do you double and triple down on those? And that is, people wonder sometimes, they go, so Mark, why are you still doing this after 13 years? And they, they almost feel like at some point you just sort of punch out. You do this because just at this point, you start having impact at scale. And that is, so if you look at things on a net basis and you think about all the things you can do and have impact with, this is the time to move. Like You should be all in right now. Even if you said, Mark, I'll give you all the knowledge you have today, send you back to 2006 and let you replay, run it again, I'd say no chance in hell. I like my hand right now. And don't confuse that with it's simple, but I like the hand. That's great. Yep. But it's positive on a net basis. I like that. It, it sounds like your style of leadership is, is to really lead by example and, and to inspire. That must get harder, though, as, as the company scales. I think you guys now have you know, major concentrations of folks in, in addition to Seattle, in, in Boston, in London, and then you've got a lot of people that are dispersed even beyond that. How do you close that gap? It absolutely gets harder. And as it gets harder, hopefully you, your return can be greater. So when I think about having employees throughout the U.S., in Edinburgh, in London, in Boston, next month in Sydney, it's like, wow, that seems hard. Yes, it is hard. It is hard to connect people. However, there are mechanisms we have available today that we didn't in the 90s, uh, ways to share stories, ways to, you know, hearing, seeing what our team, we have a Smartsheet serves mechanism at the company where the vast majority of our employees participate in community events. And when you see the diversity in what's happening, whether it be Edinburgh, London, Boston, uh, Austin, Seattle, you realize how much reach the company has. And I think with that diversity, you get a far better outcome, far better outcome. We're not high-centered in the U.S., right? We're starting to get these international flavors now. And um, it's, uh, again, a, a much better place than we were when we started the company. I think the focus on people, though, and making sure that the next newest member of the team feels like uh, their voice matters, that is probably one of the, the things that I have to be more intentional about today, because in the early days, it was just assumed, right? You join the company, of course I have a voice. You really need to be like underscore, 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 give people permission to, to contribute. Uh, that's, I'm sure, not an easy task, but a, a really worthy one. Well, this has been an awesome conversation, Mark. We're gonna we're gonna finish up with a lightning round, so we're putting it in the hot seat. Mm. I'm just gonna ask a couple of questions and and say the first thing that comes to your mind. What's your favorite book or article that you like to recommend to founders that you've gotten something out of, and, and why? One that has changed behavior at the company is uh, the Power of Moments. Have you read that, Len? I haven't. I'm going to now. But Chip, but Chip and Dan Heath, it. Uh, I read it on a flight uh, coming back to Seattle once about two weeks before our, I believe, second customer conference. And I knew we were going to have a couple thousand people showing up. And the, the whole, one of the premises in the book is how do you create these really signature moments which are highly memorable that will ultimately shape how you and your company are perceived? So it's less about trying to uh, bring the things that are a C minus up to a B minus, those will be quickly forgotten. How do you have these elite moments? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was somewhat unpopular at Lambda. I said, guess what, folks? We're going to write 
2,000 handwritten letters to each attendee at our conference. And they're like, we're what? <laughs> every, every employee had, at the time, I think, two cards, two letters that were written. When you got your registration package, you got a letter from an engineer, from a customer service rep, from an executive that articulated why we were grateful for why they showed up. And it wasn't like, hi, Glenn, thanks for coming, Mark. It was, there was one engineer who said, I got to write a card to the person who manufactures the bicycle that I ride into work every single day. Oh, that's so cool. So, so when you think of that moment, Glenn, I had people at that evening party come up to me and said, I got a really cool letter from one of your teammates. I guarantee you that they will remember that for a long, long time. So Power of Moments, Chip and Dan Heath, very influential in terms of some of those uh, events we create. Thank you for that. I, uh, anybody who knows, my wife knows she's way cooler than me. She's, she's an author. And um, actually, I had the good fortune of meeting Chip Heath. We hosted a dinner at our house a couple of months ago that Chip attended. And I, I'm a big fan of, of Chip and Dan's book, uh, Made to Stick. Mm-hmm. Which talks about you know uh, cloning cloning the bright spots. So a similar similar theme, but I'm definitely going to check out Power Moments. Thanks. Next question. You know, you guys are up in Seattle. How's the Seattle um, you know tech and VC scene changed over time, and and where do you see it headed? I would say the scene, the local scene, has not changed as much as one would think, given the explosive growth we've seen in Seattle. We we still have some very capable early stage and mid-growth stage investors here. What I would say has changed, the number of people and firms who are taking flights to Seattle. <laughs> we, see, we see folks from uh, Northern California, New York, Mid-Atlantic, Texas. Uh, a lot of people are coming here, uh, very inquisitive, and, and investments are being made. But in terms of the, the VC scene, uh, we were backed by Madrona, who has been a great partner of ours for many years. Um, I still view them as really the, the lead dog here in Seattle. Yeah, we're big fans of Matt, McElwain, and, and, and the group up at Madrona. Okay, last question for you. What's your favorite way to get to work? So this is going to sound cheesy, Glenn, <laughs> but I get to work with Smartsheet. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Right, you got to elaborate on that, though. Yeah, it's um, this is a product that I've used, I think, every day for over 12 years. And um, when you're so close to something, you care for it, you get excited about the changes, you, you actually care about the next person who gets hired, you love making money for the people who back you. Um, it was a really powerful moment this last year where two of my early investors each were able to claim that they had over a billion dollar gains in Smartsheet. Wow. That's a power of moment right there. One of the things that I, that I had um, underestimated is how much I would enjoy being accountable to others. And I get to do that every day. And um, that's pretty special, pretty special. Well, another thing that's been pretty special is this, this uh, episode of Founder Real Talk, Mark. This has been fantastic. Uh, I know our listeners are going to love, love hearing the story. And I think you're going to have a lot more smart sheet users and potential buyers of your stock after this episode comes out. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Glenn. And sharing with us your, your journey with Smartsheet. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. 
GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>